Welcome to Season 3 of the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. This is the podcast where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Be sure to subscribe at precisionmedicinepodcast.com to get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox. Welcome to another episode of the Precision Medicine Podcast. I'm Jerome Madison, and today we have Dr. Howard McLeod, Medical Director for Precision Medicine at the Geriatric Oncology Consortium. Dr. McLeod, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Jerome, it's a pleasure. Tell us about your training and your career journey. My goodness, you, you've done research in some of the the most notable institutions, but uh, tell us about the career journey to where you are today. Yeah, so I've, I've um, been fortunate enough to to always kind of chase the fun. Um, when I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I when I was a kid, but I worked at a at a pharmacy, emptying the garbages and and uh, stacking vials, and so I decided to go to pharmacy school. And during that, I noticed that the clinical pharmacists had much more fun than the regular pharmacists that you and I would think of, <laughs> and so I decided to go get my PharmD, which was a, a, a extra more of a quasi medical degree back then, uh, and so went and got that. And I noticed the researchers had more fun than the clinical pharmacists, so went and did a, a clinical fellowship at St. Jude's uh, Children's Hospital in in, uh, in Memphis, Tennessee. And during that time, one of my colleagues went and spent a year in Europe in, in Nice and so decided I wanted to do that and uh, went over, ended up going to Glasgow, Scotland for a year and then ended up staying in Scotland for eight years uh, on faculty over there. Um, one of the moves was from Glasgow up to Aberdeen. Aberdeen was having its 500-year anniversary as a medical school. It was, it was uh, founded in 1495, uh, three years after Columbus found Barbados. You know, so it's um, it's one of those those things where you know it was just having a good time, having high impact. Um, the the great thing about the UK was the clinicians and the researchers had a divide between them. But I was trained clinically and in research and therefore was able to just do whatever I wanted. And so um, ended up having a very productive time there. Uh, ended up coming back to the United States to Washington University in, in St. Louis and was part of the oncology department there as well as the genome center. Um, then moved to University of North Carolina to, to start uh, an institute um, there, uh, Institute for Pharmacogenomics and Individualized Therapy um, that went across the different schools of medicine and then made my way down to, to Tampa, uh, first to, to Moffitt Cancer Center, where set up their personalized medicine program there at one of the larger centers in the United States. Um, and then uh, as I saw the, the focus uh, of need really changing, uh, started working um, at the, the uh, Geriatric Oncology Consortium, which is a blend of a, a clinical trials center, as well as doing a lot of policy work with the FDA and other institutions. And the main uh, driver there was we see that the, the majority of patients are over 70, many over 75 years of age, often not allowed to be on clinical trials because of either direct prohibition with uh, age limits or indirect because of limiting comorbidities and such. And so here we had most cancer patients not being tested in the clinical trial stage. And so when a drug becomes normal in use, uh, these these people are really just being experimented on because we don't really know how to use them. And so 
that's um, that brings me up to date now. The the precision medicine piece, I knew when I trained there was two things that would never be important, and so I barely paid attention. One was the genome. And the second was the immune system because mm. it was all about pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. And that, of course, don't take me to Vegas because both of those things are the most important parts <laughs> of medicine. Um, but uh, um, during my time at St. Jude, a, a little girl under my care nearly died from a normal dose of, of recaptopurine. Oh, um, wow. We had a, a few other kids in the same boat. And so we we um, worked to, to help their care. Um, and then... Uh, when I went to the, the UK, uh, a gentleman had been in the ICU for 21 days after a single dose of 5-thoriracil. We dug in to figure out why he had such a terrible reaction to a standardly given drug, found a genetic reason uh, for, for him having trouble. And so a genetic reason for this child with mercaptopurine, a genetic reason for this man with 5-thoriracil, I couldn't ignore, you know, the lightning has struck twice. And so... Mm-hmm. It kind of drug me there. So it's probably more than you wanted, um, but that kind of has is, is drug me to where we are now. We're trying to make sure that precision medicine is is not just something happening at, at academic centers, is not just something happening for the physically fit, uh, but is something that we can really bring across all areas of medicine, all ages, um, all different groups that, that might be needing help. I appreciate you sharing the experience of patients, you know, effects from, you know, missed doses or potential drug interactions. Um, I guess since then, you've published over 560 peer-reviewed papers on pharmacogenomics. That is amazing. Well, one thing I learned early on is is, uh, collaboration is worth it. (laughs) Um, Collaboration is not always successful. There are times you work with someone and they steal your ideas and kick you to the curb. But most of the time, you know, one plus one can equal three <laughs> because you can really get together and and develop that. And so, you know, one of the reasons that I've ended up having so many peer-reviewed publications is not because that was the goal, but, but rather working with good collaborators, trying to ask important questions that, that really matter, trying not to publish for the sake of publishing, but rather you know, how do we, how do we solve some of these issues? It just feeds on itself. And, you know, you, you publish an an interesting novel finding. Suddenly there's a a group in Indonesia and a a group in, in Romania that want to work with you and you do some interesting work there and, and you start working with some regulators, you start working with some, some uh, other, other folks. And, and so it ends up being a, a bit schizophrenic and that you're working all over the place and in, in a lot of different sectors but it's just a blast because you can really see the impact as you're going forward. Yeah. And, and I don't want to miss this because you said this and Karen, if there ever was like a, a jewel that's been dropped in podcast, <laughs> Howard, you said chase the fun oh my and gosh, yes. not for nothing, but you can, I can, you kind of see, I can hear the enthusiasm kind of coming through your voice as you talk about this, but, but chasing the fun, I mean, that's a that's a diamond there. If you can find something that you really enjoy uh, in your career, it's not work, and you can have the type of results um, that Dr. McLeod has had here. That's a gem, Karen. <laughs> mm, I agree, absolutely. And the one plus one plus three equals three. I mean, the collaboration takeaway that is key. But totally. well, it's just I mean, it's just been my experience, and you know, some people say, well, what about you know, someone 
And you know, there have been times when I've collaborated with someone and then they've ran off and done things by themselves that we talked about doing together. But that's, you know, one out of a hundred, not 99 out of a hundred. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, I always tell, you know, our, our trainees or, or others going into the fields, like, like expect to collaborate, expect to get burned every once in a while, but mm-hmm. keep going. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you ask me, I can think back to the times I got burned, but it's hard to see them over all the the positives that we've got from collaboration. And the, the complexity of, of, um, of precision medicine is is going up, not down. And if we can't collaborate together, at the best we'll end up with with one-sided or one-dimensional explorations of a field. Um, at the worst, we'll completely miss opportunities. And I, I think we are missing opportunities currently because people tend to think that collaboration is only with people they are like. And you know, if you collaborate with people that you don't really know exactly what they do, but you know that you need to work with them, it's a blast. Yeah, um, I agree. And, and, you know, I don't, I can't give you the best explanation of what machine learning is or deep learning or some of the other elements, but we've been able to work together with some folks and we've been able to generate some stuff that's completely stupid and will never be useful. And, but because we're working together, we recognize that. And we be able to create some stuff that could really change the way practice happens, you know. And and so I think that that's something that you know when I when I look at the academy right now, I look at academia, um, you know, in the traditional university of sense of the word, we've got such an emphasis on getting a grant and bringing in the indirects that pay for the institutional uh, resources and administrative infrastructure, and. Not so much about innovation, not so much about, you know, if, you, if you're a great collaborator, you get no points uh, during promotion review. <laughs> you, mm-hmm. It's only, you know, did you bring in grants? Not were you part of a team that brought in grants, but did you bring them in? A few force, you know, p- places with foresight are doing things, but for the most part, it's still, you know, what, what did you directly kill and bring to the meal um, as opposed to, you know, how do we actually make progress? And that's that's a problem. It's mm-hmm. it's made it so that we're not as productive as a nation. It's made it so we're not as as um, innovative uh, because you know safe things get funded easier than 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 uh, you know wild ideas. Uh, but but it's you know and it, and it's frankly it's why there's so many exciting things happening in in the non-academic quote unquote um, side. Um, because you see the innovations happening at commercial companies, mm-hmm. uh, but often in precision medicine, at least they're outstripping what you're seeing at the academic centers, um, and that's that's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. I mean, so you know, we've asked Dr. Howard to come on and talk about. It. He's mentioned collaboration and innovation uh, already several times, and really, that's that's kind of what we wanted to dig into, um, it, Dr. McLeod. You know, most people who are diagnosed with cancer. Um, you know, today um, are alive in five years. I think that's fair to say, right? Yeah, I mean, there are there are types of cancer where uh, they, we have a long way to go, uh, but but many many cancers, and and even if you take out the skin cancers, which are, can be superficial in nature, and 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 uh, dermatologists can can cure them with a swipe of their hand, um, 
you know, looking at the at the solid, so-called solid tumors, um, yeah, many patients can can be cured with that. Um, and we still have places to go, so it's it's hard for me to say the the, the C word cure yeah. um, um, easily because then I think of all the the, the folks that that um, uh, I haven't been able to help, and for and those who are are currently fighting. Um, but but you're right there there has been amazing progress. I mean, I you know there are types of cancer that I thought you know having trained at, at in both childhood cancers and adult cancers. You can say the word cure with a straight face with childhood leukemias and some other childhood cancers. It's been much more difficult to say that word in adult in the adult side. Mm-hmm. So if you go and take certain cancers that, you know, 15 years ago, you ask me what cancers will never be cured. Uh, melanoma would definitely be one of them. I would say non-small cell lung cancers uh, would be on that list. We start going down the list. The immune therapies, some of the other kinase inhibitor therapies that are out, are actually allowing us to say that word. Now, not in everyone, not in as many people as we want, but it, it's, um, it's one of those things that the you know, technology advances sometimes in, in leaps, uh, not just steps. Mm-hmm. And you know, that, that's been the case for, for cancer, and it's, been, you know, it's happening in other, other areas of medicine too. Um, but certainly on the cancer side, you know, I, I still remember I've, part of my activities have been in the, in the phase one uh, drug development arena, which is new drugs, first time in human. And, you know, it's very, very experimental. And, and um, people say, well, why would I take a patient and put them on a trial when we don't know if it'll cure them? And I'll mention, well, first of all, the therapy we use now, we don't know will cure them. But secondly, it's a bridge. And, you know, I think back to, to the, um, the late 90s, there were some patients with gastrointestinal stromal tumors that I was helping care for. And if I had been able to bridge them for another three weeks to the point where imatinib, Gleevec was yeah. widely available through trials or otherwise, they might be still alive today. But I couldn't. We tried, but I I couldn't get them. Even that three weeks would have been enough. I think. I don't know that, but I think that. Um, and and so you know you you think about you know oh technology you know why why are we putting patients on trials? We're doing this. Well, part of it is we need to learn, and patients are very altruistic. But part of it is it can be a bridge to somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and that's. Um, you know, that's an element often we forget is that, you know, these advances, you know, the immunotherapy advances have, you know, they kind of came out of nowhere. Now, if you were working on them, they came out of, you know, years of hard work. But, you know, suddenly they were there and suddenly they were helping people in ways that we had not been able to do prior. Yeah. And, and you're, you're talking about the collaboration. I mean, you know, we, we can credit, obviously, a lot of things with the the, the improvement in, in five-year survival across you know, all tumor types, advancement in surgical techniques, radiotherapy, supportive care. But specifically as it pertains to precision medicine, we've seen five-year survival improve in diseases, as you mentioned uh, just a second ago, that we would have never thought we could ever see improvement. I mean, you just take melanoma with BRAF inhibitors, and now we have RET inhibitors coming as a benefit for those patients. For lung cancers, I mean, we see certain subtypes of patients with extended five-year survival for EGFR mutant lung adenocarcinomas, for instance, or or patients with measurable PDL1 
um, expression uh, treated with uh, immunotherapy. But again, you said it, we've achieved this with less than 10% of the adult population participating in clinical trials. Yeah. And almost universally, our podcast guests have pointed to technology as a means to improve our, our clinical screen rate and levels of participation. But um, you, you tell me, in, in what ways are you seeing technology starting to impact cancer research as well as the clinical practice of oncology? So it, it really goes across the spectrum, and and I don't want to go down you know, too many rabbit holes in the wrong places. But you know, even at the at the very early preclinical setting, where they're screening compounds or screening um, proteins as possible targets, where we're seeing some some interesting uses of of um, deep learning, in particular, to try to pull out. Um, t- targets that wouldn't have been obvious otherwise. And, you know, that's been the thing, you know, the old adage, you know, of, of the, the drunk looking for their keys under the lamppost and they're asked <laughs> if they lost the key there. And they know I lost it somewhere else, but the lighting is better here, you know, and I, I didn't tell that well. But, but you know, we've been looking under the lamppost in so many ways um, be, because that's what we know how to do. Um, we're seeing now, even in the early discovery side, you know, applications of, of less biased or differently biased <laughs> um, tools uh, to, to try to really bring in what is the, uh, you know, what, what are the targets that we, we wouldn't have expected. But if you f- fast forward, um, there are two technology advances that I'd love to hit on briefly. One of them is in the area of clinical trials. You know, no one has necessarily enjoyed the, the last uh, eighteen months or the last year, you know, plus um, in terms of of the what's what's all happened. But there's been some real pluses that have come out of it. Uh, you know, advancing the the application of telemedicine and 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 trying to focus in on can we get licensure across state lines and you know things that that have been more of an obstacle than a benefit. One of the things that is slowly making its way forward is the use of of tele. Uh, telemedicine, teleapproaches for clinical trials. And that has had two positives. One is patients can have their follow-up visits or in some cases, even their enrollment um, in their home. And there's some big advantages to that, either with someone going to their house or just doing it all uh, via the, the iPhone or the, or the, the, the video device. The, the second piece is that patients at places that don't have access to clinical trials, uh, is, have have now had a um, you know had a had a real Im- impactful way of of dealing with things. Been able to be on trials, um, access at least has the potential of of really really going forward, and and that's exciting. I think that that um, if you look at part of the problem we, with uh, the number of patients going on trials, certainly. Part of it is the trials are written very narrowly, and, and so you have a you have a problem where just you know people aren't necessarily available for, for trials um, because they're you know they have a, a second cancer or they have a brain med or, or bad kidneys or whatever it might be. But part of it is distance, and if you want to be treated with near the convenience of your home and you live too far away from a clinical trial site, you don't go on a trial. 
Um, there's a, a guy named Gary Puckering that that you may or may not have, have run across. Looks works for the National Quality Forum, um, and he does a lot of work looking at um, primarily the African American community, but also other other underrepresented communities um, in different aspects of healthcare. And he's he generated a beautiful map. It's probably a decade ago now, showing where African American patients are and where clinical trials are, hmm. and some of that, some of the problem was the trials are not convenient for, in that case, the African-American patients. Um, so he has similar data for Native American patients, for other other folks that don't don't uh, get represented on trials very well. Um, and, and so there is issues there. Now, some of it also is you might go to a place with a trial, but they're they don't offer it to you or they, they, you know, there's some other problems and those, those are, have different solutions. But, you know, I think the telemedicine piece has been really important for bringing trials to people. Um, the second piece there is that we're, we're seeing. So one thing that precision medicine has brought is a new type of disparity where if you're at an academic center where people do precision medicine, you can, curbside consult them you can run into them in the into the hall in the hall or you can call them up or you can whatever and get access to expertise to allow you to practice at the highest level if you're not there or don't know a guy you're um you're in trouble because it is you know just a standard sequencing panel is too complex for most folks uh, you know, you might see that B, you mentioned BRAF, you might see that BRAF m- mutation on there, but you don't realize that there's an ATM variant and this other fusion that have even more um, potent uh, uh, possibilities. And and so we're seeing now technologies, either informatic technologies or a blend of informatic and expert human technologies being applied. And I do have some conflicts um, involved in some of those. So I, I, I want to mention that, that I'm, I'm in, in uh, kissing some areas of, of a potential conflict of interest. But the, the idea that one can help a practice that is not uh, able to access the, these, these rare experts now practice at a higher level, you think about their patients who did not have, you know, this, these opportunities open to them now having them. And, and so it's exciting that, you know, that we can do that and, and that we can do that in a way that we're now seeing not only access to care, but access to, to trials and, and lots of positives coming through uh, that, 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 um, you know, allow things to go forward in ways we couldn't before. Yeah, it, the things you just mentioned, the advances in, in, in around clinical trials and telemedicine, and tools that can close the knowledge and communication gap um, that have created, as you mentioned, kind of new disparities in knowledge. They've been acerbated by the COVID pandemic, where at least in community medicine, they could get together in a tumor conference or or similar forums um, to discuss these patients. But now we can't even be in the same room. I mean, (laughs) but that is a huge the, the things that you mentioned, these are huge advances, uh, and we're seeing a number of articles that are being published talking about how CROs are becoming less stringent to yeah. to motivate patients and clinicians to participate in clinical trials, even with these types of of uh, restrictions. Right, right, and we're seeing centers. So, so 
I won't name names uh, because I don't want to embarrass anyone, but there, there are some top five ranked cancer centers that have reached out to us for some help with the practical side of precision medicine. And some of these are places that are famous for precision medicine. They sequence a lot of tumors. They put a lot of patients on trial. And those are two very good things. But the day-to-day practice is not really what they were doing. You know, they're, they're doing kind of the, the let's be, you know, the trials piece of it or the other. Um, and so even at the, you know, even at some of the biggest centers, there are some practical problems. You know, that that's one thing that, that academic medicine uh, tends to, to have as a theme is if it's, if it's practical, it's not worth doing. You know, it's, it, mm-hmm. you know, it has to be something that is, it is exotic um, because you, you don't get on the platform at, at the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting with something normal. Uh, it needs to be exotic. Um, and so, uh, you know, you see that, that, you know, that, that, um, that oncologist in the community, I mean, she just wants some help. And she wants it in 30 seconds or less so that she can go see your patients because she's got 39 more to see in the next few hours. Um, and, and so, you know, that, that, that area of practicality is now starting to, to get some attention. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. So, Dr. McLeod, you've worked on research projects with, uh, as I mentioned, some of the most notable institutions around the world, the FDA, the NIH, NCI. You're a fellow of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. Um, you know, what obstacles do you see that can inhibit the adoption of technology tools into clinical practice, the standard, uh, you know, patient care or clinical trials? Um, what's been kind of the rate limiting factor for tech adoption? So it, it's been different in the different scenarios. So it, at the at the so-called leading cancer centers, uh, the you know the the ones that have NCI comprehensive designation and are highly ranked in U.S. News and World Report, they there there the problem is a little bit of um, not invented here uh, type of um, issues. Mm-hmm. So if there's a technology that someone has developed and is brought to the place, the the gut reaction is well we can do better than this. Um, and so you see a, a delay in, in application of some of these things uh, because of that, and because of a you know if if you have intellectual property, you want to license it out to bring a lot of money in. But if you are bringing in intellectual property, well, do we really want to spend any money? And, you know, and so and so you have kind of a you know this these these issues where those centers are are slow to tend to be slow to adopt uh, be, because they're they're used to being the the, the tower that allows, uh, that lets down their golden hair, not, <laughs> not takes up anything. Um, <laughs> when, when, you, when you go into a community setting, most of the community folks are in a fast-paced, just-in-time type mode. And they're not really interested in alpha testing <laughs> or even beta testing. They want to work on something that works, you know, use something that works and, and get in there and go. And so... You have a, a number of companies that have really good technologies, and part of the slowness is finding that that early adopter who understands that things are not perfect. Um, and you know, if if I had never had a a chocolate cake, um, 
I probably wouldn't know that it's worth waiting for <laughs> and that it's worth going and buying some eggs and, and making sure that I do my part to get a piece of chocolate cake. Um, and uh, once you've had one, you know, all right, I'm all in, let's, let's go, uh, I'll get me some cake. But, um, but the, the idea that, that, um, we, you find that. And so we're seeing a few centers that are academically minded community centers that are really developing a, a nice, um, innovation uh, reputation and are kind of early adopters in that, in that format. Um, and that, that's been a, a real problem. You know, you've, you've got some amazing technologies being developed in in whatever your local Silicon Valley is called. Um, and and yet, uh, typically, they're having trouble finding the right kind of clinical partners to to bring it into the point where it could start getting the kind of data. And you know, we even see this at the biggest level. You know, the, the um, IBM Watson uh, work in precision medicine, um, I know it's not over for them. They'll... they'll They'll retool and have another go, I'm sure. But you know, some of the initial steps that were done, there there wasn't enough emphasis on finding the right clinical partners and iterating. You know, the iterative process of trying something, learning the mistakes, filling it up again, going forward. Um, that's the kind of partner you need, and there's just there are too few of those right now, um, and that that's that's a big problem. Yeah. Uh, I had to mute myself because I was laughing so hard. One for the Rapunzel reference, letting down her, her golden hair, by the way. But, but if we think about it, let's seriously think about this. Like the irony of thinking that, that technology has to be perfect before we adopt it. But, we, but the reality is we adopt imperfect technology all the time. I mean, how many updates on an iPhone do we get? Right. The, the first iteration of these tools we buy and they're imperfect. Um, I mean, look no further than the EMR, which, okay, of course, nobody adopted because they thought it was a great idea. It was a federal mandate yeah, right, right. to adopt these tools. But but how have they improved over these years? So um, I, I was just chuckling because you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, and before we got on, you mentioned like some of the rate limiting factor is that um, it's not technology is not trusted right and 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 we don't trust it we trust it in other areas of our life but in healthcare we don't seem to trust it to to jump on the innovation bandwagon immediately yeah we'll we'll trust it to to assist um but not to be the the final uh, adjudicator and mm. you know e- even in the context of of robotic surgery you know, robotic surgery sounds as if uh, there's no human in the room <laughs> except for yeah. the patient. Um, you know, it's it's robotic assisted surgery. Mm-hmm. The, the surgeon is sitting uh, at the at the terminal doing his his thing uh, or her thing, but but the robot allows a steadiness. It allows a precision that it's hard for a person to to, to bring in. Um, and I think you know that's where we are currently. We we may get to the point where we can trust an algorithm to the point where it it um, it doesn't need a, a human intervention. But even now, you know, one of the most um, what I would consider one of the most successful examples is you know Google did this study of of about 120,000 different skin photos and identified some some algorithms for for finding uh, for finding melanoma or other other skin uh, lesions and and diagnosing them and did the did a comparative trial compared to expert pathologists and et cetera. But in the end of the day, it's 
it's not a threat to dermatologists because what it's going to do is it's going to screen all of the stuff that that doesn't need their attention and flag the things that do need their attention with the human dermatologist being the expert adjudicator in, at, at the final step. Uh, and and that, that level of confidence where you can put things into different buckets <laughs> and then deal with them, I think we, we, we tend to be comfortable with that to some degree. Um, especially if, you know, if the data is strong enough. Um, but but there, even on the precision medicine side, there's some beautiful algorithms out there, uh, in, you know, including the IBM, IB, uh, the IBM Watson um, efforts, but even, even since then, a number of beautiful efforts. But, you know, at least in our experience, if we offer something that is um, augmented intelligence followed by expert review and then the report sent to the clinician, that's very well received because an expert precision medicine medical oncologist has uh, looked at it and signed off on it. Um, and really, it's that person that the community oncologist is trusting. <laughs> they don't really trust the algorithm. They just trust that the algorithm has helped that person. Yeah. And so we're, we're, we're still there. And, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's, a, it's a hard to scale uh, because there aren't that many experts out for precision medicine, true experts. Um, but, um, it is, you know, it's, it's, it's where we are and what we have to deal with. And I think, you know, the companies, Silicon Valley is full of AI companies that assume that what we're saying is not true <laughs> and they're all getting to a point where they can't go forward. And, you know, I think designing something from the start where you accept that a human will be there <laughs> is, is to me the better way to go Yeah, in the short term. Dr. Howard McLeod, Medical Director for Precision Medicine at the Geriatric Oncology Consortium. Um, I tell you, you know, the thing that stands out to me, this has been fun, Dr. McLeod, but, but it is amazing what can be accomplished when you chase the fun in your career and look to collaborate, <laughs> um, you know, with people. And, and you said it, you know, you, you meet people along the way and you don't know how you're going to collaborate, but you know that you'd want to work together. I mean, that for those who are out there growing their career, just starting out in this field, uh, in any facet of precision medicine, that is really, really profound and sage advice. Well, and and often, you know, if I'm the visiting professor someplace, um, and I, you know, we have often you have lunch with the postdocs or the graduate students, and if I mention something like that, you can you can see the the PhD advisors rolling their eyes, you know, like don't tell them that, but it's. It's true. I mean, you do have to get your work done. You do have to be someone who finishes. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's, that's something that is overlooked. We, you know, we have lots of colleagues that are great at coming up with ideas and starting them, but, but not everyone can finish. But if you can focus your energy on things that you love doing, um, it, you know, the old cliche is I've never worked a, you know, worked a day in my life because I love what I'm doing. Well, it, you get a bit of that. You know, I mean, there, there are some days that you know, no place is perfect. There's some days that, that are not so great. But for the most part, you know, if you're able to do work that you find meaningful and you find enjoying, you don't have to worry about getting up in the morning. <laughs> you're, you're, you're already ready to go. Yeah. Uh, the last 18 years of me working in the precision medicine industry has been very much a testament to that. Um, so before we let you go, social media, if the listeners are there and they want to get in touch with you uh, via social media or for speaking engagements, what's the best way for them to connect? Well, um, certainly I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, and so feel free to you know, message me there. I'm on Twitter as well. It's um, 
at McLeod Howard. And McLeod is M-C-L-E-O-D, which <laughs> often people uh, spell it phonetically and not that way. Um, and so I'm on, on Twitter. Uh, if you, there, you know, drhowardmcleod.com is a, is a website. You can get me through there. Um, so, I, you know, I'm happy to, you know, I, I love this field. I, I think that we're at a time now where there's a lot of places that could use some help to step up and really get in there. And so I'm a, a fan of that, happy to help. And just love the idea that, that, that precision medicine is becoming real. And, and that's, um, you know, that's the exciting thing about, about the, the current time is it's no longer someday, it's now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, now, Karen, I was talking to Dr. McLeod before we, we started recording, and he has one of the most unique hobbies of any oh. guests that, that we've ever had. Okay, it can't be music then. <laughs> no, it probably is, but he is a collector of antique maps. Ooh, so interesting. <laughs> well, what your, so, What's your most prized possession? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Um, well, I, so... Abraham Ortelius is kind of the Michael Jordan of cartography, <laughs> and I have a a, um, a 1545 Abra- Abraham Ortelius of wow. of um, of Europe. Um, that's probably my my favorite of of the of the collection. Um, the, you know, the initially I got an old map as just a you know I I spent some time in Scotland and and we were getting ready to move back to the U.S. and I found a a 1680 or something like that map of Scotland. And so I bought that as a kind of a keepsake. And then as, as I looked into it further, I realized there are people sitting, they were sitting in Amsterdam, taking little bits of information from ship captains, putting it together in a, into a map that you and I would recognize if we were in outer space, you know, we looked down and we, we, we could recognize it. And, you know, there, you know, there were some maps that had South America as a turnip shaped thing and, you know, California as an island and that sort of, but for the most part, you look at it and say, okay, yeah, that's Europe. That's Africa. That's, that's South America. Um, and the idea of taking little bits of information and putting together the, the full picture really was kind of in, in the theme of my professional work. Where can we take bits of the genome, bits of patient information, bits of other uh, things, put it together and come up with a clear picture of how to help a person? That that idea, and so I think part of the draw was not just the history of these maps, but the idea that somebody was smart enough to, somebody who'd never even been up in a hot air balloon <laughs> was smart enough to take bits and come up with a picture. And can I be stimulated by that with our work with the genome and when I work with the proteome and, you know, the list goes on. So anyway, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of one of those crossover hobbies that, that um, I, I do enjoy as a hobby, but it also is a little bit of secret link with my day job too. Bam. That's the way you in this conversation. <laughs> that that was well done. That, yeah, that's awesome. Well, Dr. McLeod, I just wanted to say, you know, this episode in particular, you've hit on so many reasons why the podcast was started and still exists was just the whole idea of collaboration and everybody in this field being so busy and one company saying, we agree, let's do it. Let's give back to the industry and put this um, content together that people can listen to no matter where they are, driving to work, whatever. And so we really, I mean, it's only here and valuable because of guests like you. And you really hit on so many of the concepts of, of why Jerome and I are so committed to this, why Trapello as a sponsor is and, and all of our listeners out there. So thank you very much. 
Oh, it's a, a pleasure. I mean, what you what the two of you are doing is really, you know, incredible for the field. And and actually, uh, anybody out there who wants to as a potential future guest, it's really fun work with these guys. So <laughs> do it, do it. <laughs> That's awesome. Dr. McLeod, thank you for being a guest on the podcast. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. Trapello is the first clinical decision support tool to align the interests of oncologists, labs, and payers to give patients the best chance at beating cancer. To learn more, visit gettrapello.com. To subscribe to the podcast or download transcripts of any episode, visit precisionmedicinepodcast.com. We invite you to join the conversation on social media. You can find us on Twitter at PMP by Trapello and on LinkedIn at the Trapello company page. If you know someone who would enjoy the Precision Medicine Podcast, please share it. They'll thank you, and so will we. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode. Mm-hmm.